when I was 24 years old, I took a trip. I had a friend from Western Sahara, which is literally in front of the Canary Islands in Africa. And that's a 40 minute flight. Uh, it's really, really close. And that was like my first experience going to like a non-traditional Western country. And when I landed there after just like a really short uh, flight and seeing how people live there so differently to how we live in the Canary Islands, right? Like how everything was less developed, it was less uh, education, less healthcare, and less oppor fewer opportunities in general for people, right? Uh, it kind of made me click like, wait a minute, like why do these people have less than me, not just in terms of material stuff, but in terms of opportunities and freedom. And it made me realize that it was just because I, I got lucky to be born in the Canary Islands, right? I just got lucky. And because I got lucky, I realized that now I have this responsibility to help other people who maybe didn't get that luck. And that trip really made me realize, well, actually, my purpose in life is going to be to help other people in whichever way I can. It can be helping one person or helping 1,000, but whatever I can do to help others. Kia ora. Welcome to Humans at Work. I'm Jules, your host. Thanks for joining me and our latest guest. And thanks for taking some time in your day to indulge your curiosity about other people and their humanness. If your thirst is unquenched after this, check out humansatwork.org. Now let's begin. Hello, everybody. I am here today talking with Carlos, who is currently in Italy, I believe. Carlos, can you introduce yourself and tell us where you are and who makes up your family? Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Jules, for having me here. It's a real pleasure, especially after exchanging so many messages on LinkedIn. I feel quite proud to be here today. So thanks for having me here. And yeah, my name is Carlos. I'm originally from Spain, from the Canary Islands, though I'm normally based in, in the UK. Been there for the last eight years. And currently I'm in Italy visiting my partner's family here. Um, but yeah, normally I would be in the UK. And my family at the moment is really me and my girlfriend planning maybe to expand it at some point but for now it's the two of us obviously we've got the extended families in in Italy and Spain that we try to visit at least once or twice a year and in Italy are you having the heat wave that is uh having so many headlines around the world as sort of evidence of you know climate change in action yeah, so it's pretty warm over here. I think yesterday we reached 33 degrees. I think the peak is going to be this Wednesday at like 35, which is not super hot, but still like, you know, it feels quite hot. I think they had a big heat wave like one week or two before we came because we arrived this Wednesday. So I think that the worst part uh, was before we arrived. But to be honest, me being from Canary Islands and living in the UK. I'm actually quite happy with this warm weather at the moment. <laughs> it's not that hot. So yeah, it's yeah. still able to enjoy. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in Africa, in Southern Africa oh. until I was 11. And so, and then I moved back to the UK and, and now I live in New Zealand, but I actually quite thrive in particularly the dry heat. You know, I really like it. It's funny yeah. you grow up with, you do get accustomed to what you grow up with and you can quickly go back into that coping mechanism. I think your body remembers. Yeah. 
Absolutely, yeah. I think I'm, I've been in the UK for eight years and I still haven't got used to the cold weather there. <laughs> and I think you live in Reading, am I right? In Reading, which is near to London, is that right? I used to live there. I lived there for like five years. Now we've moved a little bit more to the north, a small town called Shrewsbury, which is like an hour northwest of Birmingham, quite close to the Welsh border. But yeah, I used to live in Reading for five years. Yeah, got good memories there. I was fascinated by that because my mum, all of her family lived in Reading and she grew up in Reading. And when I saw saw you lived in Reading, I thought, gosh, it is really a small world. Yeah. In which part of Reading are they based, you know? To be honest, I I can't remember. (laughs) I just think of it as one place, you know, even though it's quite big, actually. Um, I haven't been back Mm. there and years um, she has very fond memories of it of it being a really good community when she was younger which is or oh, you know 70 years ago I'm not sure yeah if yeah I mean I was quite lucky like, I'm super glad that I went there because that was my first place in the UK when I arrived mostly because I got a job when I was paid before and I came to the UK and I was super happy and ready and like there was such a nice community very international very welcoming and yeah, I made friends for a, for a lifetime and I still have lots of friends there that we try to visit every now and then. But yeah, really, really nice community in Reading indeed, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your childhood. You grew up in the Canary Islands? Yeah, yeah, that's right. My, my dad, he's actually from Alicante. I don't know if you know where it is. It's like south of Valencia. So we used to spend our summers in there in Alicante visiting my grandparents. Because my dad also worked in the army, it means we moved a little bit. We lived one year in Madrid and also one year in Cadiz, which is in Andalusia in the south of Spain. And then I did my master's in Alicante because I had my family there. So I spent two years in in Alicante, but everything else has been the Canary Islands. And so what would you say is your favorite Spanish food? Good question. I quite like the paella. Because my, where my dad's from in Alicante, they tend to do a lot of paellas. So I've learned good recipes from him that now I, when I travel around, for example, last week that we got stuck in France, we actually cooked a paella for this family that was hosting us for, for a few days. So they quite liked it. So that was good. I quite enjoy a, a good paella. <laughs> that is my dad's favorite dish when he was is young. It? Yeah. When he was um, just after university, he traveled the world. Uh, He kind of backpacked around the world and he picked up his love of different foods from all the different countries in Latin America and and through Europe that he traveled in. But I would say that is his favorite, his favorite dish. Unfortunately, I'm allergic to a lot of seafood. And so I tend not to. Well, funnily, yeah, funny enough, we've we've become vegan for a few years. Uh, We now do vegan paellas and they're actually quite nice. We, We managed to get a good flavor out of it. So maybe you can try one of those one day. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe when I come and visit or you visit me, you can cook for me. Absolutely, yeah. That would be a pleasure, yeah. So in terms of your your career, I read with interest that you're a civil engineer. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit about what a civil engineer does? Yeah. So a civil engineer mostly does every civil infrastructure. So that goes from roads, bridges, tunnels, dams, ports, airports, harbors, canals, 
but everything you can think of out there that's not a building, everything else around buildings, uh, it's civil engineers uh, sort of job. <laughs> so it's a funny one because when I was studying in school, I was quite good with maths and physics. And I, I knew that I preferred numbers compared to like letters or other subjects, but I didn't know really what I wanted to study. And it was really my dad that influenced me to study civil engineering. He said, well, you could become a civil engineer. This was when I was 17 years old. He said, you could become a civil engineer and one day you could bring water to a remote village in Africa. Funny enough, back then when I was 17, I really didn't care about bringing water to a small village in Africa, if I'm honest. Like, I just cared about making a lot of money, you know, maybe putting my name in a bridge or something and be like a famous guy sort of thing. And, you know, uh, pretty uh, different values from what I've got right now. But I said, okay, yeah, I'll give it a go because it sounds like a career where I can make money. My, my goals were to have like different sports cars. Uh, so that's what I was uh, planning to do. Um, but funny enough, he planted that seed in me that I think over time it's been growing. And it kind of led me to where I am at the moment that I really, my purpose in life is really to help others and try to make the most positive positive impact I can. So yeah, that's really how I got into civil engineering. It wasn't really my my own decision, but my father planted that seed and and yeah, I started studying that. And you run do you run your own business now? Uh yeah, so I've got my own little civil engineering consultancy. It's called Tyrol Engineering. Uh we have three people in the team at the moment. So it's really small, really small scale. <laughs> What I, well, I'm interested in is how you marry your focus on sustainability and climate action with civil engineering, because I know you have a plan around how you do that. So can you talk to us a little bit about how that works? Yeah, so when, when I first came to the UK, I started working for a big engineering consultancy with like 80,000 employees, like really pretty big for, for that sector. And what I realized there is that there was a lot of waste, um, you know, in the industry. Like obviously, construction industry is one of the most polluting ones, and there's a lot of things that we need to improve. Maybe one of them is not building that much <laughs> to begin with. Um, but obviously, there's this push for the economy to build stuff because that triggers a lot of other um, economic factors. But yeah, what I saw is that everything that's done in that sector is very inefficient. It's full of waste, like. Just me working in this huge office, right, with all of the, um, you know, like the energy consumption, I would go to the toilet and like every two hours they have a, a big bin full of paper just from people there. And, you know, like all of the photocopies, like people would just print stuff all day, printing stuff. And, and I don't know, it made me start thinking, back then I was starting to develop this interest in sustainability. And I started doing some campaigns inside the office, like simple things like maybe using a paper on both sides rather than just one side, right? Like you would still see people just printing one side and then binning that paper. Uh, we do lots of sketches, so we could actually use that back side of the paper to do just, uh, you know, dirty sketches. So that made me all start thinking, okay, this is not really where I want to be because it's it's really not being done efficiently. And I tried to make them a little bit more efficient, but I found lots of barriers. Um, I think being such a big corporate, you know, you have so many levels of bureaucracy and, and things like that. So in the end, I decided to leave that job and start something on my own that I could try and 
at least do my little help for the industry to be more efficient and have less waste. Um, so that's one of the approaches that we use in general engineering is that we work fully remote. And it's funny because people ask me, oh, how can you be a civil engineer and work remotely? Because it's, it's not like a typical, more like, you know, like a marketing or graphic design that are more prone to be remote. Um, but at the end of the day, we do exactly the same thing that I was doing before in that huge office. And we deliver even more value for our clients now. Like they're super happy. And we don't need to be in a big office. We don't need to travel to the client's offices. We don't need to travel to the site to see things like we can do everything remotely. Um, so that's a big, uh, you know, um, sort of advantage. And also we've eliminated like all of the photocopies and, you know, everything else. So we've kept our carbon footprint. We measured it on the first year. It was a uh, thing on top of my house. I have to check, but I think it was around eight tons of carbon for the whole company, three people working. And that's like, less than my own personal carbon footprint or pretty much about that. So it's like a three people company being, you know, such a small carbon footprint. Like literally we just have our laptops and whichever other electronics we work with. Um, so that's one of the aspects that we try to do to, um, to be more sustainable. And obviously try to educate our clients. Like we try to do our processes much more efficiently. And we think, well, how can you do the construction also more efficiently? Um, so we do a lot of education. It really takes a long time because people in the construction uh, industry, especially, they're more like old, old mindset. Um, so it takes some time to to get them to, you know, think about these things, sustainability. And, you know, sometimes we go, well, actually, you don't need these two roads. You just need one. Why doing the two of them? Um, and we try to go that route and, and help them reduce the overall construction or, or carbon footprint and just keep it to what's really needed. Um, so yeah, that's all the sort of engineering stuff. <laughs> I mean, I'm interested in the two sides there. Um, you know, I, I have actually two businesses that I run um, and um, both of them run 100% remotely. Um, we in my consulting business, sometimes we do need to travel to be with the client. Um, but we do that as, you know, um, as efficiently as possible, um, electric vehicle, you know, um, all, all of those things. And once you get into yeah. the habit of doing it and the expectations of the clients are set, actually it works perfectly well. Um, I would say it's, uh, it's better in many ways, actually, um, but I, I'm also interested in, you know, your kind of education of for clients about different ways of doing things, because there is a lot, there's a lot of, it's not resistance necessarily more than not knowing that there are different ways you could do things. If you think about supply chains and trying to transition to more of a circular economy and choosing uh, materials that are not so um, so dangerous for biodiversity or for the environment. A lot of it isn't that people don't want to do it. It's just that they don't know. And sometimes it's really difficult to, you don't have the time, you don't know where to find that information, you don't know where to find those suppliers. Um, would you say, this is a big question I'm going to ask, but would you say if you were in the building industry that you could actually dramatically cut down on, you know, your impact on the environment um, and, you know, not just carbon, but all of those other impacts, would you say it's possible 
or would you say there are still areas where you know there's just not the suppliers uh or it's just it's not just it's just not possible good question yeah and i must admit i'm no expert in in buildings it's something that i'm quite passionate about i try to learn more but i'm really no expert in that in that area um but from what i see from experts is that we cannot say that any building is sustainable um at least a new build building um because of all the materials even if you try to go and take like really sustainable materials uh, today there's still like a lot of carbon embedded in those materials from extraction in the mines to processing manufacturing the shipping to the to the site where that building is going to be built so what i tend to see is that it seems to be the most stable option is is not build that building and rather um, converting existing buildings, right? And and try to make those more uh, energy efficient and, and that sort of thing. So I don't know if maybe we can get to a point where we could actually build a sustainable building. But even right now, if we put like all of the solar panels, uh, we make like reuse the internal water, harvesting of the rain and everything, it's still gonna have an overall negative impact uh, when you put everything together. So I think, yeah, there's lots of challenges there that we still need a lot more innovation in the industry to be able to say, yeah, we can build sustainable buildings. But at the moment, it seems that it's probably better to try and look how to repurpose existing buildings, right? That one thing that comes to my mind is like, there's so many office buildings out there, right? Like, uh, and we could potentially, with more work from home, with more remote work, try and convert those to you know building apartments for people to live in because there's this housing crisis right for people that's uh, struggling to get a home so i'm thinking that could be a, a good option right like trying to convert those if we manage to get more people to work from home wherever possible and we have all these empty offices that have already been built then we can try and convert them and make them more efficient for for people to live in but yeah i think overall there's also this issue that even if we make a building super efficient, but then as a whole industry, we are still increasing our energy usage. We are not catching up, right? So they say, yeah, it's good to make energy efficiency in buildings and stuff, but we still really need to look at reducing that energy consumption. Because if we make buildings 30% more efficient, but we increase overall energy consumption by 50%, then we're still creating more pollution and, and more damage, right? So. I think it's, it's important to look at that factor and, and see how can we actually reduce the amount of energy uh, we, we use overall. And would you say in civil engineering and, you know, around things like roads and, and more of that infrastructure, that there are more opportunities to introduce um, elements of biophilic design into what have traditionally been kind of quite hard hard um, surfaces and hard designs, you know, um, because biophilic design is one of those, um, one of those options for reducing the impact, particularly of things like flooding, um, but also the impact on biodiversity and being able to, to marry up or match up, you know, hard infrastructure that human beings need with, you know, safe places for insects and, and plants to, to kind of live and flourish. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's a good point. Uh, these days, um, there's a lot of, especially when it comes to the drainage of all of this infrastructure, right? There's a lot of um, awareness being raised about sustainable urban design systems, 
which is like, as you said, like rather than having a hard stand of concrete or asphalt or whatever, you can actually have what we tend to call like a rain garden, right? Which is more like a, a place which is actually quite good for biodiversity. You can have all sort of different species in there. It's more like a grass area with the water and everything. So you can actually promote that biodiversity. And that tends to go really well with a lot of linear infrastructure like roads or anything like that. Um, so I do see a, a bit of a change there. Like there's more regulation also in, in that sense that's uh, promoting that. That's the top one solution we should uh, should try and, and implement. And okay, if that doesn't work for good reason, then you can look at the other ones. But that should be always be the, the top uh, priority. And also like even roads materials, like there's a lot of um, companies right now looking at innovations in terms of using more recycled materials to do roads. Um, there's some uh, projects out there to do uh, precast roads with uh, recycled plastic, for example, like blocks that you can just install one after another. Um, I do see still a little bit of resistance in most projects to try and implement those. Um, but there's been some trials being done. So I'm hopefully, you know, we're seeing a little uh, transition in, in that sense. Because obviously roads are quite polluting in that sense when it comes to like, you know, bitumen and concrete. They're quite heavily intense in those materials, which have a lot of embedded carbon footprint there. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely one of those challenges that we need to, to look at. And again, I think one of the keys there is is to really not build what what's not necessary, right? And I say in the industry, and, and this is a really broader topic, and it, it goes into politics and everything. But um, civil engineering it's normally built after a business case done by a government, right? Like being a local council or a national government. And this business case would say, well, there's an increased demand here. So it means we need to build another road to bring all of this extra traffic, right? And there's a couple of things there. One is that normally for local councils, they need to spend all of the budget they have, because if they don't spend it next year, they will get less budget from the national government. So there's a bit of a conflict of interest there, right? Because you have the local council that wants to build more stuff because they get more budget and then they can do more things for their citizens and their, their communities. But on the other side, it's sometimes promoting building for the sake of building. Um, maybe there's not really a strong business case for that road, um, but still they want to spend that money because otherwise they won't have more money next year. So there is where I think the whole of uh, the communities being, you know, the local citizens, as civil engineers and all the different stakeholders involved, we need to try and put pressure and say, hey, well, maybe we don't need that road because, you know, there's other roads around. Like sometimes we build the road to save five minutes in another road. And it's like, you know, we need to balance these things and say, well, actually the negative impact of that is probably more important than those five minutes that we save, right? So there's that sort of conflict of interest that I think there's a lot of things that we need to do to try and make it more inclusive for everyone and not just thinking about spending that budget, but thinking what's the best for the community and what can bring the most value to the planet as a whole. And on the other side also is that the concept of demand generation and demand management is like, okay, there's more demand 
to use that road instead of building another road can we actually provide better public transport can we build a better cycle lane so all of those people rather than going more on the road they will swap to a different transport mode and so i think there's a lot of things that we need to change there and not just look at demand and build more roads but actually how how can we shape that demand right how can we rather than be reactive be proactive to that demand and, and, and design ourselves the demand that we want through different investments and different strategies in different transport modes. So I think those two key things like designing the demand and also you know, looking at how local councils and national government spend their, their budgets, those are really key for the long-term uh, sort of systemic change that we really want to build. Yeah, and I am, you know, I'm very passionate about incentives and the incentive structure and what you're talking about there is really driven by an incentive structure that uh, is not fit for purpose now and certainly won't be in the future, where, you know, instead of granting, you know, building consents for um, for brand new office buildings that are full of glass and have you know no kind of natural elements um, can only ever be used for offices because of how they're designed or you know or, or that's the excuse anyway. Um, we're not incentivizing businesses to look at repurposing or multi-use buildings that are going to be um, sustainable for whatever demand there is in the next 50 100 years um so it's a it's a little personal bugbear of mine that in wellington which is the capital of new zealand um there are all of these glass fronted um buildings normally that have you know a big consulting or private industry banner on them um you know they're really shiny uh, facades of egos um, not not trying to be too critical but you know that's kind of what they are yeah. uh, and you know there's been a lot of rebuilding or building of new um, of those new buildings since the pandemic um, which I just think is you know is crazy partly because what the pandemic showed is that people can work flexibly and they want to work flexibly um, and so even if people do want to come in to be in a in an office environment they don't want to do it every day and they don't want to do it nine to five um, but we also have these housing crises everywhere so you have these huge glossy buildings um, that are you know air conditioned and very artificial in terms of the environment within them and yet they're there is very little thought to how you can make them a good community actor um, within that local environment, you know, to, to help with, with people who want to live in the city um, or people who want to holiday in the city or people who want a bit more interaction with nature. And it just seems so short-sighted and such a waste of money. But the incentives really aren't there to drive the different kinds of behaviour. And that's a that's a political and a governmental um, challenge as well as a kind of private industry challenge. Yeah, totally agree. And I think that's where we need to sort of use our power, right, as a global citizens and and keep putting that pressure on on governments and corporates because. I believe that you know corporates are driven by profit and governments are driven by votes, right? That's what they want. So it's us that we can actually force them to change, right? Like if we start putting pressure and, and being loud about what we want, 
um, ultimately, when we build this mass, this critical mass of people, they'll they'll have to change, right? Like we've seen so many changes in so many you know political projects and and corporates, and and it's always a reaction to that demand from the public, like. Unless you get really lucky, I think there's cases as well where you can get like a really good leader inside one of these corporates or a really good politician that actually has these values and wants to do the right thing. Like in most cases, they'll be driven just by numbers, right? By the votes or the or the profit. So if we can vote with our wallet and uh, with our ballot and you know make the right decisions and then keep putting that pressure every day out there. So that you know these incentives can come along for example right like we we need to tell them we actually want these incentives um and yeah i think there's a lot of um discussion at the moment saying that there's a lot of talk not enough action and and i think that's right but on the other side to get more action we need more talk right because if there's enough if there isn't enough action it's because there isn't enough people who are aware of these things so unless we make more people aware, there won't be more action. So, so yeah, I think we need that couple of both uh, action and, and awareness and helping everybody realize that we actually have that power to create that long-term systemic change and, and demand these things like incentives to repurpose buildings and, and make them more efficient and, and all of this. So tell me a little bit about your global um, change makers activism. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I mean, everything goes back again to when my father planted that seed, right? <laughs> I think that's been developing over time. There was one one key thing that I wanted to share, and is that I, because I live in the Canary Islands, I, I, I grew up there, right? When I was 24 years old, I took a trip. I had a friend from Western Sahara, which is literally in front of the Canary Islands in Africa. And that's a 40-minute flight. Uh, it's really, really close. And that was like my first experience going to like a non-traditional Western country. And when I landed there after just like a really short uh, flight and seeing how people live there so differently to how we live in the Canary Islands, right? Like how everything was less developed, it was less uh, education, less healthcare, and less oppor fewer opportunities in general for people, right? Uh, it kind of made me click like, wait a minute, like, why do these people have less than me, not just in terms of material stuff, but in terms of opportunities and freedom? And it made me realize that it was just because I, I got lucky to be born in the Canary Islands, right? I just got lucky. And because I got lucky, I realized that now I have this responsibility to help other people who maybe didn't get that luck. And that trip really made me realize, well, actually, my purpose in life is going to be to help other people in whichever way I can. It can be helping one person or helping 1,000, but whatever I can do to help others. And so since then, I've been trying to align everything I do to help more people. And I've been doing more volunteering and reading a lot and learning a lot. And I think I'm still figuring out, okay, what's the most impactful thing I can do to help others? But when I came to the UK, I started being involved with a charity called Engineers Without Borders. Uh, I think they're pretty much all over the, the world. And it makes sense, right? I'm a civil engineer, Engineers Without Borders makes sense. <laughs> so I started volunteering with them. I started running lots of events for them in, in Reading, actually. And so we had events with like 50 plus people there. 
And I was putting a lot of energy and effort into putting these events, bringing people together, raising awareness, discussing topics. And the thing that I realized back then is that after putting a lot of effort, energy, and time into it, I would get to meet a few change makers that had really similar values to what I had. And they also wanted to change the world in a similar way. And they were living down the road in my street or in my neighborhood or in my town. And it was like, I had to put a lot of effort to meet these people. Like, it hasn't been easy. And it made me think, how many other people like these are around me that I don't know? So back then, that was in 2015, I thought there should be a place where I can just go and find change makers around me, right? Like it's common sense. I was thinking the United Nations or you know one of these big corporations or organizations should, be, should, should have done it already. And I started looking for, and I didn't find anything. And the truth is that for eight years, I've been looking for it and haven't really found anything like that. So last year, this brings all us to back uh, last year, um, I sat down one day to think about, okay, if there's just one thing that I could do for the rest of my life, what would that be? You know, one of these typical questions that you get into like leadership courses and stuff like that. But I really sat down and spent like a good hour just meditating, looking, thinking about it. And I realized that this um, this tool, this app, uh, God Ripple, that uh, we call it, um, it's probably the most impactful thing that I could do in my life. And it's not about me creating change, but about helping others uh, creating change and amplifying the, the impact that they're making. So last year I said like, okay, so I'm going to do it. Um, I'm going to start creating this and trying to help change makers, you know, connect with each other and amplify this impact. So that's when I came up with the concept of Good Ripple and I started the community uh, back in November last year. And I thought, well, what can I do to try and connect with other change makers and bring them about? So I thought, well, if I use LinkedIn as a platform to create content there, because I love writing, like it's, it's been a passion of mine for, for many, many years from since when I was school. Um, so I was like, if I can use LinkedIn to create content there and bring together these change makers and hopefully help them, even if just a little bit, then it's going to be worthwhile. I think it's, it's going to be really aligned to what I, I want to do. Um, and that's how it all started, really. <laughs> I love that. And I love the idea that you had this sense of I want to do good, but it took a while and it took some effort and a bit of discipline to decide what your contribution to doing good was going to be. Because I think I think sometimes and, and perhaps I've had a little bit of this myself where you have this kind of amorphous sense of urgency um, and that there is something that you can do, but it takes a while to, to kind of hone in on it. And once you do, you have that real sense of passion and drive and, you know, momentum. Um, but before that, you know, you're sort of stuck. Uh, you're kind of wandering around a little bit and you're, you know, you're trying different things and, and researching different things, but you don't feel like you're actually adding the maximum value that you that you want to. Um, so I love that idea that you've you've found that niche um, and that you just went for it. Yeah, and I think I, I kind of forced myself into it because I, I, I know myself and I could be postponing that forever, right? And, and just because I'm 
a little bit of a perfectionist in, in some senses. And I'm like, okay, I need to have it all perfect before I go out there and tell people and, you know, do it publicly. But when I realized, okay, this is what I want to do, I started thinking, how can I force myself to actually do it now rather than keep postponing it? Because years go by, like we don't realize years go by. And then, you know, you look back and it's like, okay, what have I done? I haven't really done what I wanted to do, right? So when I realized, okay, this is what I want to do, um, I mean, one day I decided, okay, to force myself, I'm going to put publicly in LinkedIn. From now on, I'm going to post every single day. And just the fact that I did that and put it out there, it put me into that mindset of, okay, so now I've committed to it. I've told people, even if maybe just five people saw that post, but I was like, okay, I've committed publicly. Now I need to keep with it. And it kind of helped me to keep track with what I really wanted to do, making that public commitment. Because um, I know that it is really what I want to do. And it's uh, sometimes I think we need to help ourselves because you know our mind sometimes tries to to trick us into not doing what we want to do or procrastinating or anything else. So I think finding these little tricks to trick ourselves into what we want to do, um, at least with me, it really, really works a lot. So so it was that tipping point of putting it there. And then since then I've been posting every single day. And I mean, I'm super happy just with these conversations that I'm having with people like you who are creating positive impact, creating change, helping other people. To me, that's the most inspiring thing. Like, you know, whenever I finish one of these goals, I go run into my girlfriend and say, oh, I met this person and, you know, she's amazing, he's amazing, they're doing this, they're doing that. It keeps me really inspired to carry on doing so. So, yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. <laughs> that's exactly what I do with the podcasts, you know. Um, I In some ways, it's, a, it's an indulgence, you know, to to find people and then to spend, you know, an hour or however long talking about stuff that's not related to a task. It's actually related to values and ethics and, and your stance. Um, but I find that if I don't have that, if I don't allow myself that time, um, I can fall into a little bit of despair. You know, I'm generally a really optimistic person, um, but, you know, the state of biodiversity and, you know, the future ambiguity for the planet is is heavy. Uh, you know, once your eyes have been open to it and you've looked at some of the science and the research, you know, it's a bit depressing. Um, but having that time to share passions with people and to hear what people are doing and what's driving them, you get that buzz of community and you get that injection of optimism as well as that, you know, the inspiration. Um, everybody that I've talked to through the podcast or that I engage with on LinkedIn, I learn something from uh, or I solidify an idea that I've been sort of, you know, procrastinating, uh, uh, procrastinating about writing down or doing something with. So, um, I, you know, I'm really happy to hear that, you know, uh, you get the same joy from these conversations and the interactions as I do. I think it's what keeps a lot of us going, actually. Um, and we need that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think especially, as you said, like with such big challenges, right, like, climate change and inequalities, extreme poverty, it can feel like such a daunting task, right? Like it's like, I can't fix that myself alone. So when you try to, you work on your laptop to try and fix it, it can really feel quite lonely and feel 
like, what am I doing, right? Like, this is impossible to change. But suddenly you start saying, well, actually, there's other people out there uh, doing something similar that they also care. And, you know, when we put all of that together, it's like, we can actually make a big change and really change all of these issues. So, so yeah, I do get a lot of inspiration from, from people to, to get going. And as you said, like, yeah, like we could see that the world is a really negative place with everything that's going on. But on the other side, it's positive because we have an opportunity to do something about it. And I think that puts us in a situation that it is a good thing in a way because I can help to fix that. So, you know, it's uh, it's not that we can't do anything. We have the power. Um, and I really like the word responsibility um, because I think when you feel responsible for something, not necessarily responsible in the sense that it's your fault, but responsible in the sense that, you know, the word responsibility, if you take it, you break it down, it means you have the ability to respond, right? Responsibility. So I feel responsible. It means I have the ability to respond, to do something about it. So when I feel responsible, I feel I can take action. I can do something. And that really, um, you know, helps me sort of shift that, um, that narrative from, oh, we live in a, you know, negative world, everything's bad, why bother? Well, actually, it's good because, you know, I'm not happy that there's extreme poverty or climate change, but I'm happy that I can do something about it. So at least it, you know, it keeps me optimistic about it and, and motivated to do more. Yeah, completely. I mean, I um, I have this real um, focus on hope and hopefulness um, because I think if you see that there is hope, then you will um, have that response. You will take some action. And I think the other thing, I think you talked about it earlier, about being too much of a perfectionist, you know, so if you can't solve it, then why bother? And so I think if you combine that kind of hope with some action and not trying to be perfect or solve everything or tick all of the boxes um, all of the time, you know, we're all human in the end, you can actually go forward, you know, and feel like you're having an impact. Sometimes what people need is they need to talk to people around the community globally for that recognition um, because people tend to be quite hard on themselves. You know, I'm not doing enough. I could do more. I'm not having a big enough impact. I, you know, I'm not reaching enough people on LinkedIn or I'm not getting enough likes or, you know, I've called for this action and, and nobody's really listening. Um, and when you have that sense of the, you know, change makers across the, across the world or in, in Reading, in your community who are saying, you know, I'm hearing you, I, you know, you're changing my mind or, you know, you're helping me keeping going. That gives that sense of validation that you are actually having an impact absolutely yeah and, and i feel that sometimes it's actually difficult to see that impact and we are living in this world where we're super obsessed with data and measuring and i think yes we need to have this data and measure a lot of things because otherwise we go a bit blind but we shouldn't just focus on data and measuring we should also be aware that this conversation we're having can trigger so many positive ripples uh, that I'm not going to be able to measure. You are not going to be able to measure. But, you know, it's, it's the combination of all of these little things that end up having me doing something for the world, right? Like, it's not like just one thing triggered, but there's so many addition of so many things. So I think being able to see the impact, even when we don't see it, like just having this conversation or, you know, 
uh, reading a book or watching something or literally just making a simple swap from one uh, you know item to another, it can really go a long way because maybe it's not the impact that that little thing does, but it's the mindset that it helps you create that in the long run can trigger like huge impact, right? So I think we need to start obsessing a bit less with trying to measure absolutely everything and also realize there's non-measurable things that are really important that we need to be focusing on, just like this conversation. So what's next for you? What what are the next ideas that you're scribbling down or thinking about? Right. So, I mean, long term for Good Ripple, what we would like to do is, is really to create a, a mobile app where you could really just go and see all of these change makers around you. So something like Tinder, but for change makers. <laughs> Because um, I think we are we're really missing out in the power of collaboration, and especially at a local level. Like, yeah, we also believe in you know connecting people globally. But if you can connect with three, four, five people in your street, in your neighborhood, which ha who has aligned values to you and want to change the world, that gives you a really special power that virtual connections cannot give you. Because suddenly. You know, you can go for a walk and have a chat face to face. You can, you know, have a meal together, talk about it, come up with ideas, brainstorm and start running things locally. And, and I think, you know, once we tap into that power of seeing how many people there are around you that want to change the world, I think we will change the world much, much faster. So what we're working on in the background is trying to develop that uh, the app. Uh, there's still very early stages. What we're doing right now is talking to a lots of change makers to really understand their pains, if this is really a pain for them and how can we solve it uh, more, more efficiently and with more value. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like the next step, long-term vision <laughs> to create that app to really help people connect quickly and meaningfully and don't have them waste a lot of time um, and create uh, non-meaningful connections. So it's almost an alternative to LinkedIn though, right? Um, I think they can go quite well together. So I don't see it as a substitution of LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn is great. Like I love it. And, you know, it's got its own positives and negatives. Um, but I think having these, that's really just focus on change makers because LinkedIn, you know, there's everything in there and you need to spend time to filter and get to really the, the people you want. Um, but this will be especially just for change makers and um, not so much about creating content, but more about connecting. And also what we're planning to do is giving people um, a lot of resources so that they don't have to waste time doing research uh, to get these, these resources. Um, but yeah, the main thing is like, you know, you open a map and suddenly you see in your street other change makers there and you can filter by SDG or, you know, by different causes and everything like really a really deep and rich filter that uh, places like LinkedIn don't have as much and you know that would allow you to create like really meaningful conversations really meaningful connections quickly um but yeah I see it as you know being the both together maybe collaborating in the future somehow <laughs> I mean it sounds amazing I do think that there is a lot of value in that because um, that sense of we talked about earlier about being able to act 
um, sometimes you need somebody just beside you and then you can act and and local actions um, can have such impact um, over time but but certainly for the people around you know around you and to change those incentives um, so I think it sounds amazing I'm in thank you <laughs> thanks a lot Jules yeah it really means a lot um, hey, thank you so much. I know that you have had to take time out from your um, your trip to Italy for this. And I know that it's been a long time coming with a broken down truck and schedules uh, that have, have caused us to have to rearrange it a couple of times. I've been really looking forward to it and it hasn't disappointed. So I did want to say thank you so much for giving us your time. You're such a, an inspirational person, so, so um, optimistic um, and kind and that comes across on all of your engagements on LinkedIn and definitely in person. So thank you very much. Thanks, Jules. And it's really the, the sentiment is, is mutual. Like I'm, I've been really looking forward to this and I'm sorry that we had to reschedule for, for various reasons, but I'm, I'm super happy that we finally meet each other, even if it's virtually. And I'm super thankful that, you know, you've uh, invited me to be here. It's been a, a real honor. And I'm looking forward to meeting in person, real person one day. If you come to, to the UK, I know it's a long trip, but if you ever come, <laughs> let me know and I'll be quite happy to cook that paella for you. Sounds fantastic. It's a date. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks, as always, to the generosity of our delightful guests. The stories of how others have faced up to their challenges can help give all of us courage to keep going with our own. For more great episodes, blogs, learning packages, go to the humansatwork.org website.